it seems to be sort of paradoxical that the left has become, in that sense, conservative. It believes in the state and expanding the state. So there's some truth that the right is more rebellious. One of the great paradoxes, this kind of right-wing populism, to what extent it rails against corporations and the mainstream media. How did that happen? It's clear that the left itself has become more conservative. I mean, it, it, you know, it is part of a liberal establishment and real opposition to that doesn't exist on the left. It exists at least in ideology on the right. How did that come about? Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. Hi. George Hoare. Hey. And myself, Alex Hochuli, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. All the other two guys are over in the UK. So on this episode, you'll hear that I had the opportunity to speak with someone who I was delighted to get onto the podcast, Russell Jacobi. For those unfamiliar, he's professor of history at the University of California, Los Angeles, one of the leading lights of the new left, and one of the sharpest historians of ideas of the past 50 years. Personally, he's someone who, since I first read him, was always struck by how sharp his critiques were, how courageous they were, and how unstinting they were, particularly the end of Utopia, which I read back in my early 20s, and which really struck me for displaying how one could be totally thoroughgoing in critiquing contemporary ideas, which I kind of felt were not very good, pretty limited, not particularly inspiring, but actually critique them and demonstrate that they were complicit with the way things were. And the way things were was a state of affairs that should be overthrown. The way he provided the intellectual resources to do that, at least intellectually, has always stuck with me. So I was delighted to be able to speak with him today. And just to give you a little bit of an overview of his books, if you're not familiar, his first was Social Amnesia, a Critique of Contemporary Psychology, which came out in 1975. I'm not going to cover all the books, but just to mention another one which treaded similar terrain, The Repression of Psychoanalysis, Otto Fenichel and the Political Freudians from 1983. Also in the early 80s, he published Dialectic of Defeat, Contours of Western Marxism, and moved on then to turn his gaze towards intellectual culture, a particularly arid intellectual culture towards uh, the end of the Cold War um, and the post-Cold War era. In that vein, he published The Last Intellectuals, American Culture in the Age of Academe in 1987, um, when it was republished in 2000. Also, Dogmatic Wisdom, How the Culture Wars Divert Education and Distract America. And throughout that, he was always uh, mounted a, a mounted a forthright defense of the critic, and the role of utopian thought in social criticism. He developed those ideas then in The End of Utopia, Politics and Culture in an Age of Apathy, which came out in 1999, 
And then Picture Imperfect, Utopian Thought for an Anti-Utopian Age, which came out in 2005. And then finally, most recently, uh, On Diversity, The Eclipse of the Individual in a Global Era. Uh, and it's some of those themes, psychoanalysis, the end of utopia, and diversity that I spoke about with Russell Jacobi in the interview. George, Phil, you guys are also, I think, fans of his work or have read some of them. Um, anything that stands out to you? Yeah, both. I mean, End of Utopia and um, The Last Intellectuals were both influential on me um, when I read them in the early 2000s or so. And uh, particularly, actually, um, particularly The End of Intellectuals, um, because that was also a time that I was, you know, deciding whether or not to become an academic. And I remember what particularly struck me about it was how he, Eve, he, and this goes to your point, Alex, what was impressive about Jacobi was that he criticized even those figures that seemed to break the mold, um, you know, like Camille, Camille um, Paglia, you know, who had kind of um, cut her cloth as a kind of iconoclastic academic. And she seemed to be, you know, kind of to um, be a genuine public figure and a genuine public intellectual, but she wasn't spared his criticism in that book either. And, you know, anyway, so an influential, um, you know, an influential thinker in my thought as well. Yeah, uncompromising, definitely. End of Utopian, Dialectic of Defeat, a two that I, I remember reading a little while ago now. And yeah, just willing to criticise, I think, you know, Phil put it, well, even the things that, you know, you think are against the, or the exceptions. No, these are the things that, you know, in true dialectical fashion, they kind of prove, prove the rule. So yeah, I mean, you listed some of those books there. There's obviously absolutely loads and um, yeah, loads of things that would be good to talk to him about. Yeah, I mean, and I, books packed with ideas, um, stuff that you really have to kind of take a note on as you go along, incredibly wide ranging and, and deeply read, if you can say that. Also, I think, you know, I mentioned kind of courageous, at least for me personally, it provided me with, uh, I guess, the courage to, this will sound cliche and it'll sound really naff, but, you know, dream big. Because basically he kind of goes, you know, if intellectuals aren't going to hold on to big ideas to imagine different futures, um, to be somewhat utopian in thought, even if the concrete nature of that utopia isn't spelled out, it's not about blueprints, but, you know, some sort of better, grander future. If someone who's thinking and writing isn't going to do that, then who else is? Uh, picture, so picture the scene, reader. Um, what Alex was like in his early twenties as a naive, a naive back then he was actually good looking as well, and in his early twenties at LSE, and he was dreaming big about intellectuals and being an intellectual, and he was starry eyed about Russell Jacobi. Cast your mind back, listeners. Eh, not not exactly a, a correct portrait, and not least because Phil didn't actually know me back then when I was an undergrad. Mid twenties, so. mid twenties then. But no, I think um, dream big is, yeah, I can kind of see how you could get that. It's kind of the, the fridge magnet uh, summary of um, <laughs> right. the thought. But no, I mean, that's that's it, right? What is the place of utopian thinking today? What, what's it been historically? Um, yeah, and I think that's, that's a, you know, an important question, definitely. All right, so what you're going to hear now in my conversation with Russell Jacobi uh, is us covering uh, a series of themes. So we start off looking back at Russell Jacobi's oeuvre as a whole um, and also look at why he started firstly with a critique of psychology, of what he calls conformist psychology. 
then we spent quite a bit of time talking about utopia. What is utopian thought? Is there utopian thought today? Is it all dystopian? What's the basis of dystopianism today? Uh, before we move on to talk about his recent book on diversity, which, um, as you'll discover, and as I discovered when I read the book, isn't so much about diversity, but is about individualism, and specifically individuality, and why the um, kind of strong, robust individual who is imaginative and is able to sustain themselves no longer seems to exist, and what Jacobi's account is of that. Uh, and then we conclude by discussing some kind of contemporary themes that arise from our preceding discussion um, and talk about the kind of scrambled intellectual and ideological coordinates of today, where you have a seemingly conservative left and radical right, and what to do about that. How do we act in this age? And how do we think grandly, think utopianly in this era? So as is usually the case, uh, the first half of the interview will be available to you all in this episode that you're currently listening to. But if you want the rest of it, you will have to sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast. We'd love to have you there. Uh, $5 subscribers get at least two original episodes a month, including extended interviews like this one, uh, dedicated episodes where the three of us analyze uh, in-depth present history, the affairs of the moment, um, and try to ask the deeper questions which aren't asked elsewhere, as well as our responses and regular discussions with patrons uh, in response to our lively message board. And for $10 a month, you get all that plus access to our monthly reading club. This year, in the 2023 syllabus, we're going through three big themes, freedom, legitimacy, and globalization, all very much to the point, all very 2023, I'm sure you'll agree. We're actually in the final phases of going through that first section on freedom, discussing Martin Hagelin's stupendous book, This Life, um, which tries to provide us with a new grounding for freedom based on how we manage our time, how we use our scarce time, and how taking charge of that might actually set us free. In doing all this, what we're trying to do is find the intellectual resources to break through our contemporary impasse that we call the end of the end of history. So anyway, that's all at patreon.com slash bungacast. We hope to see you there. Uh, we'd love to have you. Other than subscribing, if you don't already follow us, we're at bungacast wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on social media. And if you like what you hear, remember to review us, give us some stars. Nice one. Okay, here's my interview with Russell Jacobi. All right, Russell, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start by discussing your upbringing. Um, you were 15 in 1960 and 20 in 1965, if I'm not mistaken. And <laughs> you were you were brought up in a, in a Jewish milieu in New York that was liberal and perhaps radical. I don't know if you would describe it as such. Um, but I mean, I'm assuming that politics wasn't something that necessarily you had to actively choose to be interested in, but was was interested in you. So I wonder what ideas animated you back then when you were 15, 20, something like that, or whose ideas kind of animated you at that time? Well, um, I mean, I think I was probably a fairly typical representative of, of, a, of a part of the 60s generation. Uh, I, yes, I came from a family which was political. Uh, I, uh, the phrase of being a red diaper baby uh, I don't think it's totally accurate in my case, but maybe I was a pink diaper baby. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, my family was on the left, uh, and most of their friends uh, were on the left as well. So I think I came into that world 
uh, with a particular orientation. And it was a world which, uh, you know, as, as one knows, was was changing rapidly. I mean, there was there was there was the uh, anti-nuclear uh, movement. There was uh, the you know, anti-racism or anti-segregation, the civil rights movement, and and then looming up was the Vietnam War. Uh, so all those became issues as I was you know, in high school and then as, as I went to college. And, you know, that becomes certainly uh, the context for not only me, but for many of my generation. Uh, but, you know, I, I did come from a, a leftist family, so it was not all uh, news to me. Right. Uh, that so you know, so yeah, you know, so when I went to college, uh, Vietnam War, the end of the war, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, these were the issues of the day, uh, and you know, as as you know, and they remain the issues in, in college uh, for the next uh, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years. Right, and I mean, I, I guess the um, impulse to critique society came fairly naturally as a consequence. Um, but it was something that, you know, rereading your work throughout it, you seem to tacitly or sometimes explicitly defend the role of the social critic. And I think today the social critic is a, not only a rare figure, but also a pretty unpopular one. It's like being a pundit, except worse, maybe more cantankerous and more aloof. Um, and I think probably compared to a pundit, the, the social critic might not easily as easily bow down in front of the orthodoxies of the day, but at the same time would be dismissed as someone pontificating from their ivory tower or their armchair, depending, I guess, on your metaphor. Um, but across your work, you come across pretty forthright about not only uh, the necessity, but also the duty of the social critic and the duty maybe to be a critic, um, at least for those who see themselves as intellectuals or maybe those who don't see themselves as intellectuals, but nevertheless form part of the intellectual caste. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you how you understand this and whether you indeed do see it as a, as a duty to be a, a social critic. Uh, the duty to be a social critic. Uh, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I, I'm sometimes tempted. I mean, I think, yes, the short answer is yes. But I think, you know, half the uh, professorial class sees themselves as critics at this point. Mm. Uh, and I've been tempted to, at some point, I don't know if Marx ever said, uh, though it was attributed to him at some points, the, the comment that all I know is that I'm not a Marxist, uh, something that Marx, you know, maybe he once said that. Um, and in some ways, I also would say, you know, all I know is I'm not a critical theorist. Because, <laughs> right. You know, uh, you know, because critical theory you know, has become so inflated and so vast. Uh, and that's, you know, is, is that the social critic today, the critical theorist? Uh, you know, everyone's a critical theorist. You know, we have critical everything. We have critical, you know, race theory. We have critical anthropology. We have critical sociology, critical, you know. Um, so, you know, it's difficult to to simply say what what, you know, is the social critic today uh, is it a critical theorist? Is it an academic? Is it someone who has a podcast? Is it someone 
um, you know, I've written in the last intellectual something about the necessity of critics to be able to command the vernacular to mm. enter the public world. And I continue to think that's, that's you know, important. Um, and, and one of the things that I've uh, talked about in that book and, and elsewhere is that, you know, paradoxically, the right has been better than that than the left. Yeah. Uh, that, that the left actually has commanded critical theory, meaning academic theory, uh, but is unable to command the public discourse in the same way that the right wing has. And I think that remains a problem. I mean, that, that, that you know, the, the social critic today tends to be a professor uh, and speaks to students and colleagues uh, and not not to a public. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Sure the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the um, obtuseness and opacity of the language, I guess, is something that's in, in, in sort of these sorts of criticisms, it's something that you always come back to. But I think it's right at the end of the day that, you know, that it's not spoken. Uh, these criticisms aren't made or the, the kind of writing is... Um, opaque it's um, not accessible um and it seems to be almost deliberately so but what's interesting i think is that at the same time this language i think that the language of kind of whatever humanities academics or you know postmodern the postmodern academy has infiltrated a lot of public life now as well um in areas which are not formally within the academy whether it's you know nonprofits and um the arts and media and so on so i think that there's a weird thing there happening with the with the vernacular that you refer to that in a way that weird critical theory language has become the vernacular at right. least for certain sections of society. Right. Well, I, I agree with that, and I don't think that's all. Uh, I'm not sure that's always progress, but yeah, I've I've written about that myself, and in what extent I would revise the last intellectuals because, in fact, some of that academic jargon. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the identity politics, uh, you know, a lot of the multiculturals and diversity stuff is coming out of the university uh, and has infiltrated in the to the public sphere uh, through students, basically. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, that that's that's progress. I mean, it, it's also distorted politics uh, in many ways. Um, but it is true that I think that academic jargon, and again, I've said often, I don't, you know, you th the leading American Marxists are basically only known in the university. Uh, I mean, you know, who, who knows who Frederick Jameson is apart from, you know, you know literary critics or Gyatri Spivak or, mm. or, or Obi Barbar. Um, but it is true that, you know, their students, in a certain sense, uh, have have you know gotten employment in the public world, and so some of that jargon uh, has entered into the public sphere. Uh, and I'm not sure that's always a a plus. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think it has damaged uh, some public discourse. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, this kind of pops into my head now, but um, talking about the the way that these kind of this sorts of language and these sorts of ideas has filtered into the public sphere, whether some the the kind of opposition to that hasn't filtered into the public sphere as well. Uh, so this 
the the notion that you've criticized for a long time about the professionalization of intellectual thought of intellectual life um, and the whole role that the academy plays within it um, that um, there seems to be a, a maybe people coming around to your point of view I guess um, it's been popularized um, perhaps under the terms in which Peter Turchin talks about elite overproduction that's something that I see kind of thrown about increasingly so I wonder if there's in some maybe light at the end of the tunnel or a realization that um, academia might not be the best place from which to think well, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, on one hand, the economics of the university have 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 changed in the last you know fifteen years, so that the employment has has much diminished, so that younger younger critics or intellectuals can easily find positions. Uh, so they have to make their way in the world, you know, uh, podcasts or subscriptions or you know that that you know the university is no longer, at least for the humanities, uh, so welcoming. I mean, just for pure economic reasons. Mm -hmm. So there is there is possibly, uh, I mean, someone just sent me an article about, you know, the new younger critics uh, who are not basically uh, professors, or at least, you know, at least uh, many of them weren't. And um, so one could say, yes, there, there is a possibility. There's an opening there. Uh, as the universities contract, uh, at least in the humanities, and we've seen this, you know, in the last decades. I mean, English departments, and my history, you know, they're all beginning to, to shrink. Uh, so this has forced intellectuals, would-be intellectuals, into the public world. So, I mean, I'm obviously trying to be a bit hopeful here, and we're going to spend a bit of time talking about uh, your ideas on utopia um, and your discussions of utopia. But before that, I wanted to roll back, I guess, to your very first book, Social Amnesia, which was published in 1975 and was a critique of what you called conformist psychology, which is looking at the post-Freudians and the neo-Freudians and critiquing them for abandoning, I guess, their, their master's radical insights. Now, the preface to that book was written by Christopher Lash, um, who I think, if I'm not mistaken, supervised your doctoral thesis. Is that right? Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, yes. so in, in that preface, he notes the dynamism of the times, but also remarks that it's rather perpetual motion without forward movement. And that, like commodities, thought as well seems to come kind of uh, packaged up with planned obsolescence built in. And I wonder if we could maybe turn to the question of, of psychology in, in, in light of that and, I guess, therapy talk, um, which is everywhere today. And it's whether it's conveyed by TikToks or Instagram reels concerned with mindfulness or actually talking about kind of the, the forms of language spreading out from the from the academy and, and elsewhere, um, that, you know, the lexicon of corporate communications is also infected by therapy talk. And I wonder how... Maybe looking back to that book, which yeah, I guess you were writing about fifty years ago, how you'd evaluate the uh, the advance of psychology and in broad terms uh, since writing that book. Uh, yeah, not a simple question. Um, I mean, I, I I don't really think I've changed my position. Um, I mean, obviously there have been enormous advances in psychology. Um, I mean, certainly on the medical side, I mean, in terms of drugs and treatment, um, you know, it tends to be symptomatic as opposed to analytic 
I mean, if you're depressed, mm. you know, this is, you know, we, we, we work on the chemistry of it. And I, I, I'm not one to say that that's uh, something which should be discounted. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't really go to the heart of the matter. I mean, why, why people are depressed or what is wrong with society. And that, that was always my argument in social amnesia, that the, the psychoanalysis, the psychoanalytic approach, um, therapeutically was hopeless. I mean, it was, it was you know, five years of analysis with limited results. <laughs> But it was a very serious encounter with the structure of the individual, uh, and with 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 you know with the interface between society and the individual ultimately. And many of the therapies that were appearing were much more superficial. Uh, you know, we're, we're 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 quick therapies. You know, how how to feel better, how to how to do this, how to do that. Um, which again, if it works, it works. On the other hand, let us not kid ourselves. Um, and I think I made the analogy even then, um, which I think is, is probably valid. I mean, if, if you're dealing with you know, occupational diseases, let's say black lung disease, and you're a medical doctor, um, you deal with the patient in front of you. You have a lung disease. This is the remedy for that. On the other hand, if we step back, the problem is the coal mines and mm. the conditions in the mines. The two don't go together. And it seems very difficult for people to see that. That is, that is the individual therapy and what helps the individual is not necessarily the same as the analysis of what is the causation. And you know that was part of my argument, theory and therapy. Uh, and we continue to, to conflate the two. You know, now more than ever. You know, what makes people feel better? What works? Yeah. Okay, but is that is that the problem? Yeah, like low serotonin. You know, you can treat that, and therefore low serotonin becomes the problem. For example, rather than anything deeper. And okay. I'm yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really struck me. I mean, when I read that book, how um, I thought, can he do that? <laughs> Which is to say, to defend Freudian theory, but basically say, well, you know, the actual practice, um, the actual clinical practice may or may not work, but let's leave that to one side. The important thing is to defend the theory. But this it was, Freud it, himself would say that. You know, yeah. I think I end the book. He says, we promise everyday unhappiness. That was the promise of, of, of Freudian psychology, everyday unhappiness. Well, no one wants that. I mean, you, you can't open it, you know, you can't put out your sign as a therapist and say, guess what? You can be as unhappy as everyone else. Uh, that was ridiculous. And it would take you five years to get there. Um, so as a therapy, uh, you know, I mean, there's something else there too, which I mean, I, I, I might mention, uh, I mean, is, is that, the clientele of the psychoanalytic world in those years, you know, devoted so much time to introspection. I mean, these are people who, you know, the classical psychoanalysis was every day for an hour mm. for several years. I mean, it, 
and this is a society which wasn't as wealthy as ours. Um, I mean, it's also it's almost inconceivable. You say go to therapy every day for an hour. Uh, I mean, these people were serious about looking into them, and now we're not so serious. We want we want something quicker. We want something faster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quickly consumable mental health. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to turn to Utopia because I, I it's um, two of your books um, which marked me quite a bit um, back when I read them uh, in the mid two thousands, um, which specifically are the end of Utopia: Politics and Culture in the Age of Apathy, which came out in nineteen ninety nine, and it was followed in two thousand five by Picture and Perfect: Utopian Thought for an Anti Utopian Age. So. And, and probably not just in these two books, but the notion of utopian thought and uh, the role and duty of the critic or whatever, as we've already discussed, um, is, is a thread that I think runs through a lot of your work. And as I was explaining to you before we started recording, that the premise of this podcast is that we're living through the end of the end of history. And uh, looking back, the first chapter in your book, The End of Utopia, is called The End of the End of the End of Ideology, right. which right. Um, which actually sounds like the way that many people mock this podcast sometimes by just going, oh, it's the end of the end of the end of history. Um, right. But but actually that, that chapter um, featured um, a very critical depiction of the way that all sides had given up on dreams of a better society. And I wonder what your take is now, you know, if we were to fast forward uh, 20 odd years since the publication of that book, and we have the post-Cold War era uh, order breaking up, uh, neoliberalism has lost its authority, even if it kind of still remains, and political turbulence in general is on the up. So it's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is that, you know, the end of history was characterized ultimately by apathy. The subtitle of your book is An Age of Apathy. And today it seems like, you know, if there's one affect um, if we can be a bit kind of reductive about this, it's that 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 characterizes things. It's anger. So I wonder, I mean, do you think, you know, having looked at um, thought over the past century um, and been very critical of thought during the end of history, or the absence of thought during the end of history, whether the kind of current breakdown that we're living through, this interregnum, uh, might actually encourage some greater adventure and thought. And if indeed, if you have, <laughs> if you have any evidence of that, or if you're just um, very gloomy, uh, I, I can't say I have much evidence of it. Um, I mean, yes, I, I, I suppose it's fair to say we live in a age of anger and resentment. Um, but, you know, which, which I think I've I, I mentioned in, in, in passing uh, in an interview, I mean, I mean, look at the strikes in France. Um, people are angry about changing the age of retirement from 62 to 64. Well, again, I, I guess one could understand that. Uh, I mean, some of the people who are interviewed are students. They've never worked. Uh, you know, what are they looking forward to? They're looking, you know, they're fighting so they can retire at 62 as opposed to 64. Um, and they're angry. And, you know, that this, but what is the vision that they have? I mean, it's it's a vision which is, you know, is completely accepted the society they live in and mm. say, yeah, let's just get through this working life and, you know, get on the other side of it. I mean, that's the hope. Um, so it seems to me uh, that's a pretty constricted vision, even though, again, I mean, one can understand the people who are on strike. 
Um, but compare it to the strikes of the 60s, where there were also labor unions on strike. Um, I mean, you could say it was hopeless, but there was a, a whiff, uh, a spirit that maybe the consumer society was rational, uh, that we were working, uh, you know, to, to, to produce abundance and, you know, it wasn't making anyone happy. Um, but that's gone. I mean, so, so, I mean, the anger that you're referring to uh, seems extremely limited. I mean, it's, it's palpable, but it doesn't have a vision. It mm -hmm. doesn't have a hope. And, and, you know, the retirement age is a perfect illustration. I mean, we want the status quo, 62. That's where we're fighting. Yeah. And Macron wants 64. Let's go, okay. I mean, that's, that's the monumental issue of the day uh, in France. And it is. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I mean, I don't, I don't want to generalize France everywhere, but I don't see, um, I don't see much of a vision here. I mean, people have accepted it's, 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 uh, yeah, we want control of the schools. We want, you know, the homeless off the streets. Uh, there's certainly issues everywhere. Uh, but there's very little bit of, you know, the, the utopian spirit or a vision of a different kind of life, the end of work. I mean, that's, it's, you know, it's, it's not even mentioned anymore. It's not, you know, it's, it's gone. Yeah. So uh, I, you said we, we want 62. It might actually be we want 1962 because I think both mainstream left and right are, are nostalgic for uh, the Trente Glorieuses or, you know, the post-war golden era, albeit different visions of it. But I think, you know, both both left and right kind of at best have a, have a kind of nostalgic longing for that. Well, it's possible the right for the 50s, the, the, the left for the 60s, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where the dividing line exactly is. Maybe 1962, maybe 1960, but yeah. Right. You mentioned the desire to, you know, retain the, um, the entirely justified desire to retain the um, age of retirement at 62 in France, um, but that, you know, the dream is is resignation. And I, I've been tussling with this. Um, and I've, it's something that I've even called kind of provisionally kind of the utopia of resignation. And I think this is kind of one of the few sorts of utopias that we can see about um, in, in the sort of popular imaginary. And so it's not the dream of social transformation, but of retiring. I think you've commented something along these lines recently. Um, and I think we can maybe see this in proposals, probably for the the, the hottest new idea that there is out there, um, I'm skeptical, but uh, for universal basic income, um, or indeed even just in the practice of people quitting their jobs as you had in the so-called great resignation, um, maybe sometimes downsizing their lives and personal ambitions. So basically accepting um, it's not, you know, a life of plenty, but actually a trade-off, right? So you have less money um, in exchange for a quieter, more dignified life. And I think that seems to be... Um, to the extent that a world without work or a you know post-work vision, and this is you know fairly widely discussed on the left today, um, I think that is the the extent of of the ambition. It seems to me, but there's something interesting happening there. I don't know if you agree. 
You mean with this idea of a guaranteed income as, as, as a... Not specifically that as a policy proposal, um, but perhaps more broadly that there is thinking going on about work, about working less, about how we arrange um, and organize the world of work. Well, uh, I mean, to the extent I'm aware of it, which is not uh, much, but I mean, sure. I mean, I think the questions of work and how to reorganize work, uh, and maybe a guaranteed income, uh, you know, are, are ways to get at this issue, which, which you know, seems to be so, uh, you know, reified that you know we, we you know we, we've largely accepted the consumer society and and work uh, as a way to to you know keep it going. I mean, I think of. You know, Thomas More, I mean, the utopia, I mean, the ending of it, you know, he himself says, look, I mean, okay, everyone won't be wealthy, but you'll have security and a life without anxiety. Um, you know, and, you know, for your children and grandchildren. And it seems to me that is so crucial. I mean, we, we live in a world of such anxiety about our lives and our children and our grandchildren. So if, if there is a way to organize society um, with security, yeah, a guaranteed you know, minimal income, uh, a guaranteed for your children and grandchildren, sure. I mean, that's a way to, to, to smuggle in a, a utopian uh you know, idea. Mm. Um, but it, I mean, it is smuggling in. I mean, it was, it's, it, you know, what it, it was Marx's, uh, what, son-in-law, right, who writes The the Right to uh, Leisure, or is it? Uh, laziness, I think, right? Uh, is that, huh? Laziness, is that right? The, light, the right yeah, to laziness. Yeah, yeah, maybe, something. And, you know, and he was criticizing some of the right to work laws, uh, you know, the sense that, you know, all we want to do is work. Uh, and, may, and maybe that is, you know, maybe there is a shift going on because for a long time, uh, particularly Americans, unlike the French, uh, you know, prided themselves on how long the work week was. You know, yeah. you, know, we, really, you know, we work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours, you know, you're a top lawyer, you do 80 hour weeks, you know, that's great, right? I mean, we work hard, we work long, you know, we work hard, we play hard, we consume hard. Well, you know, that's crazy, you know. I mean, that's 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 totally nuts. Uh, so if there's a way to chip away at that and say, you know, that that's that's a trinity which which is disastrous, you know, eighty hour work weeks, a lot of money and a lot of consuming. Uh, that's disastrous. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean I guess I'm I'm I raise the issue because I'm also troubled by it because for its sort of one-sidedness because it does seem to be also a um motivated by a certain i don't know dejection a rejection of the you know perhaps the busyness i called it a utopia of resignation kind of you know of wanting to um you know bow out of of the world of work but not really um attempting any form of social transformation it's you know to get your um you know to get your check from the state um once a month and then um and live off of that while society kind of continues on it's sort of uninterrupted you know you're allowed to kind of bow out individually 
Right, right. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. I, mean, I think utopia of resignation. I mean, it does it accepts the work world. Uh, you know, there, there is no sense of a fundamental reorganization. But you know, wh where do we find that nowadays? I mean, wh where is that spirit? Uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to find. Uh, I mean, it's not totally gone, but it's, it's certainly it's at its, at its weakest moment. Mm. Uh, the sense that there are some alternatives, and that the the society, uh, you know, is is on track for, you know, is is fundamentally destructive and irrational for all its, you know, progress. It's irrational and destructive. Yeah, um, I mean, and and in this situation, I, it seems to me that the only one of the few motivating ideas left it tends to be dystopianism, um, if you can call mm -hmm. it that, or you know, certainly a kind of a politics of fear, which is practiced um, on all sides of the spectrum nowadays, and everybody has their preferred um, sort of emergency. I don't know if you can call them dystopias specifically, but I mean, uh, you know, I I've been wondering about these sort of um, what you call, call regressive utopias, I guess. It's been discussed in those terms, particularly where I live in, in Brazil, um, with discussions of the rise of Bolsonaro, of the radical right, of growing evangelical Christianity and apocalyptic sort of ideas of sort of, you know, the only utopia that's left uh, is a sort of regressive utopia. Um, and I wonder what your, what your take is on that, whether you kind of see that in the US, for example, whether you would see um, the U.S. right as having some kind of, um, you know, apocalyptic vision, or is it really more mundane than that um, in terms of its, you know, that it's just mundanely populist and, and nothing else? Well, I'm a little reluctant, I mean, to, 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 to expand the term utopia uh, to include any, I don't know, any, any plan of any sort. Uh, I mean, I think historically, uh, for whatever its weaknesses, it did have a vision of universal peace, of a certain kind of brotherhood, uh, of a dismantling of a kind of a work economy. Um, so when you spread it and say, well, there's various visions of post-society, which, you know, tend to be I don't know what insular or 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 nationalist or even racist, and those are utopian. Uh, no, they're not utopian. Uh, they're something else. Uh, you know, you're 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 expanding utopia beyond its legitimate term. Um, but sure, there are certainly plans out there. Uh, there are certainly visions of how to create society, but I wouldn't call them. Utopian, uh, they're yeah, they're they yeah, they are regressive, or they're so they're you know, uh, violent, or uh, but uh, you know, utopia has has a tradition, and for whatever its flaws, and this is why I've always um, objected to calling Nazism utopian or something, because well, if you have a vision of a racial state which kills people, that's that's utopian. I say you know. What, why is that utopia? I mean, wh what utopian writers have ever come up with that idea? Uh, you know, you, you just don't find it. I mean, you you can find things which 
you don't like in the utopian world. I mean, mm. in, in terms of it's 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 setting forth certain rules. Uh, I mean, again, Thomas More, there was only you couldn't wear the you know clothes was very simple. <laughs> you had a, uh, but you know it wasn't violent. It wasn't destructive. Yeah, it has to be at least uh, a sort of nice idea to to count as a yeah, utopia. Yeah, I mean, so what, what, yeah, why is Nazism utopian? Man? But it's it's come to, you know, people use it in those terms so that we have utopians of various flavors. But I think at a certain point that's illegitimate. Yeah, um, I mean, in in the attempt to try to um, survey a little bit of you know, what ideas are out there. So I've already kind of talked about uh, universal basic income. On on the right, or maybe just more generally, more popularly, there is maybe another sort of utopia, though I suspect you wouldn't agree on calling it utopia, but it's maybe the last kind of motivating idea, which is that of entrepreneurialism um, today, which I think if you look around, I think people might, um, and just ordinary people would um, have some vision of, uh, of, you know, being their own boss, of setting up their own business um, as, you know, that kind of hustle as providing a sort of way out. Uh, and that perhaps even a society in which everybody's doing that, however unrealistic that is, um, that that itself constitutes some sort of vision um, of the future. And then you get the, the more worked up visions of this, which is, you know, the Silicon Valley, you know, big tech vision of, of utopia, or at, at the extreme, I guess, Peter Thiel's vision of, you know, breakaway zones of, you know, like a utopia of, of winners of the guys who, um, you know, the guys who made it and, and set up their own societies. I don't want to necessarily go that far. But I wonder what your take is on the kind of the culture of the entrepreneur today. But, but why? I mean, I mean, isn't isn't that the oldest idea, as opposed to the newest? I mean, mm. you know, to 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 open your own store, open your own restaurant. I mean, it's a, it's just a um, it's a version of that, which which uh, you know, you opt out of the uh, of the rat race and you open your own shop somewhere, uh, selling uh, you know herbal tea um, or you know a restaurant or something. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's I, I don't see it particularly as 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 a new idea, and I'm not sure. Um, I mean, unless you're talking about um, everyone setting up podcast or 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 you know, God forbid eBay stuff, <laughs> uh, yeah, or eBay, you know, stores or something. Um, I mean, those are you know, it's it's a version of an old. Yes, you can work from home, and you can sell your crafts or something you know i mean good for you if you can do it but 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 what what is new here uh uh you know it's it's a it's a version of something which which you know immigrants and americans always hoped yeah. you know set up your own store set up your own business uh, so you, do you think the prominence of the, do you think the prominence of it then is more just the recession of other kind of more social visions that has left kind of entrepreneurialism as as the last it's the only thing standing is that the way you'd see it <laughs> where do you see this uh, most emphatically this ethos of of the entrepreneur uh are you asking me? I mean, I, yes, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I see it quite a lot. Of, I mean, I'm, I'm drawing from my own experience, but in here in Brazil, um, where, you know, 
workers will be quite proud of themselves as being an entrepreneur, a micro entrepreneur, whether it's just buying something in bulk and reselling it or becoming an Uber driver, and that there's a certain right. pride in that and the autonomy that they have, which is not just working for a boss, um, right. and all the way up to I'm going to make it rich with my idea. Um, right. But this is, yeah, I mean, this is the lore of, of capitalism. It's always been, I mean, you know, you could become your own independent worker, your own, you guess, you could work for yourself. You can, you can, and, you know, if it, if it works, good, but I don't, it means you set up your own business and if it gets successful, it's a bigger business and you hire some people and you become a larger business. Um, and and I mean the attractiveness of that idea, um, yeah, it probably hasn't diminished. I mean, you, yeah, if you look at the streets, I mean, we have immigrants setting up little pop-up taco stands, or you know, I mean, what you know, let's have our own business. Um, and I think you know uh, that that's a path which is can work, but we know where it leads. It just means, you know, it's it's a society of independent business people. Uh, and some become more successful and many don't. Mm. But I don't see it as fundamentally, you know, anything but an individual choice within the capitalist society. So, I mean, uh, I guess the, the individualism that's there, I mean, it's clearly an absence really of a, of a, a social vision. Um I guess leads us on to what to um, your more, most recent book on diversity, the eclipse of the individual in a global era. Um, and I was surprised by this book because um, it's not really a critique of diversity or diversity, equity, and inclusion, as maybe listeners might imagine, as I certainly imagine when I picked it up. Um, and it's also not really a critique of kind of wokeness or cancel culture or these kinds of things, which I was expecting. And I was thinking, well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Russell Jacoby will do a really good job of critiquing that. But I don't know if I can be bothered to read another book on this, um, right. having just read uh, Norman Finkelstein's book, which is not to cast aspersions about that book, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't do with reading another book on that same topic just now um anyway it turns out that it's not really about that um it's actually about the fact that everyone talks up diversity these days but that the world is becoming a lot less diverse um and that specifically individuals are less diverse than each other and individuals seem to be less individual so i wonder what prompted you to write this book was there some some event something you observed that made you feel well this is the thing that i need to critique and this is the thing i need to defend right now well, I don't know if there's any particular, you know, one thing. I mean, but it's pretty clear if you travel the world <laughs> at all, uh, you know, um, you can see to what extent the forces of, you know, whatever you want to call it, Americanization, late capitalism, consumerism, uh, spread. I mean, e even the extent that young people look more and more alike. I mean, I go to France a lot. I mean, the French used to look different than Americans. <laughs> I mean, they dressed differently. Uh, and I used to argue with my partner that she would say, "Oh, the French will never adopt. Um, you know, they'll never they'll never wear athletic wear. They'll never wear sneakers. I mean, that's just American garbage, right? Well, wrong, right? They all wear sneakers. They all wear blue jeans. I mean, you see this everywhere in some ways." Uh, that that the forces of capitalism and consumerism 
And here, you know, Marx in the Communist Manifesto put it, you know, they knocked down the walls. I mean, it's just impossible to resist. And you see this, you know, virtually everywhere. And it seems to me, I mean, it's just a paradox that, you know, as the world becomes more homogenous, the ideology of diversity uh, gains more and more, you know, energy without any acknowledgement of the countervailing forces uh, that, you know, we are becoming more and more a connected, homogenous world, which is not to say less violent, but uh, at the same time, we have this ideology, which is booming about we are more and more different. Um, and again, I mean, I worked in the university. Well, again, we see, you know, diversity, diversity, but, you know, how diverse are, are you know, are people? You know, people want the same things. They want to drive the same cars. They want to live in the same neighborhoods. You know, what does it actually mean to say everyone is more and more different? And how do you, uh, how do you account for that paradox? I mean, is it, do you think it's a sort of compensatory sort of mechanism whereby people talk up diversity to compensate for the lack of diversity? Well, I, I, I think, you know, in some sense, I, I do say that in that book and elsewhere, you know, uh, that in some sense, yes, that, that you know, and, and I think this is, it's certainly true in, in, in immigrant communities. And I, I mean, I, again, I, I be careful to generalize, but, you know, it's pretty clear that immigrant communities in America, you know, Polish, those older communities, Polish Americans, Italian Americans, you know, they lose the language pretty fast. You know, Polish Americans don't speak Polish. Italian Americans really don't speak Italian. Uh, you know, my grandparents spoke Yiddish. Um, you know, the languages go, uh, a lot of the old ways go, uh, but the identity gets, in some sense, more and more rigid. You know, but what is that rigid? What is that rigidness? I mean, what is it based on? Is it just based on symbols, flags? Um, and often that's the case, you know, that, that you know, I'm Italian-American or, you know, even I'm African-American. You know, what what does that identity mean if you're lifestyle and plans and hopes are very similar to everyone else's. Uh, and it seems to me that is the case. I mean, most people want in on the same thing as everyone else. Uh, and, you know, that's, it's sort of a, a truth that no one wants to admit, I guess. I mean, they don't want to say, yes, we're all so different, but actually we want the same things. We want to drive a BMW and live in a nice neighborhood and go on vacations, you know, to the Mediterranean. I don't know. It's like, well, where's the diversity there? And then you say, well, um, yeah, my music tastes or my food tastes are somewhat different. Oh, okay. Is that it? I mean, that's pretty limited. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't the, uh, the, the capitalist triumphalist or maybe the complacent respond, well, that's because they're good things and everybody should want them. So there we go. What is there to argue about? Well, okay, exactly. I mean, so yes, capitalism is one. People want the same things. 
you know, they want iPhones. Uh, and again, I, I say, that, you know, who are the people who really are not part of the diversity thing? It's like the Amish, some maybe Hasidic Jews, some very small communities who are very insular and stand apart. And basically, they're never mentioned because they don't want in. They want out. I mean, they, they don't want to participate. You know, no one says we don't have an Amish representative here. They don't want to be here. <laughs> uh, everyone else wants to be here. They all want part of the pie. Um, so, I mean, this seems to be the, one of the gigantic uh, paradoxes of the diversity ideology. Um, and in this sense, some of the conservative critics are not wrong. I mean, what does it mean to have diversity if everyone agrees? Uh, basically, uh, you, know, you know, what because intellectual diversity in terms of, you know, any kinds of programs is impossible to, to tabulate. I mean, you can look up, you know, you can tabulate race, you can tabulate religion, you know, skin color. Uh, so we could have that kind of diversity. But what is diversity of ideas? How do you, how do you how do you get that? You know, I mean, if we all agree, you know, what's the diversity? Yeah, market um, competition everywhere, but in in the realm of ideas, I guess that's what's that's well, what's yeah, and that is a conservative critique, which I think is you know not totally wrong. Uh, I mean, there's something to that. Um, because all the, yeah, I mean, we'd look at, yeah, the, the other things we can list, we can do spreadsheets, you know, on diversity, uh, in terms of race and religion, uh, you know, the economics is something else we just often left out. I mean, we, you know, cause that again is harder to tabulate, you know? So, so, I mean, I've argued that a long time ago. I mean, you know, some of the universities are much more diverse in terms of their 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 photographs, but actually they're all wealthier. I mean, yeah. you know, they actually you know they look they look very diverse, but if you actually scratch away, um, they're coming from a very small economic class. Uh, even though you know it looks this is gorgeous, you know we have black people, we have Latino people, uh, we have, you know, but. If you scratch away, you know, most of them are actually quite wealthy. Yeah. And that's, you know. And, and so, I mean, the, the in the beginning of the book, you know, you talk about this question of this sort of generational sequence of, of immigrants, of how third-generation immigrants tend to seek out their roots and perform their difference um, rather than seeking to integrate as their parents and grandparents did. And two thoughts spring to mind. One is whether... That is a sort of generational dynamic that this always happens with third generation immigrants, or whether it's merely the coincidence of that third generation with a historical change, which is that you know, the kind of rise of identity politics and decline of universalist ideologies. Um, you know, what do you think is most operative in that attempt, not just among immigrants, of course, but um, kind of broadly among to, to kind of go and find your roots to try to, you know, shape your own identity and, and this sort of, um, you know, these sorts of practices? Well, I mean, I, I'd say the short answer is both or all of the above. Um, I mean, on one hand, it, it has been said that, you know, it's, 
it's it's the third generation which which feels secure enough in terms of its kind of this is in terms of the United States. I mean, who feels secure enough as an American citizen that they can begin to identify as you know a hyphenated American as Polish American or Italian American. Uh, so it takes a certain success and uh, security to begin to 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 present yourself as as something else. Um, but at the same time, yes, I mean the rise of identity politics and 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 you know I think I say somewhere it's it's sort of the opium of the left, um, you know, in the in the absence of any vision of the world, we 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 just want more different things, um, so that that you know that is also part of the story that we've entered a period where politics. You know, it does shrink to identity politics. I mean, your, your vision is you know based on your identity, and it, you know it's not clear where that leads, except to, yeah, we want more people like ourselves in you know fill in the blank in in law schools in Hollywood, uh, you know wh- whatever, and you know, and, and that's, it's pretty explicit. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, I cite chapter and reverse. I mean, like, you know, we want more uh, of our people. And again, it's, it's, it's fair enough on itself, but as a vision, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, uh, empty. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't, doesn't offer much more. You know, we want yeah. more of ourselves to give more our voices of ourselves. And what are those voices? I mean, do you offer something? Well, that sounds so clear. Yeah, it's uh, rearranging the carefully allocated chairs on the Titanic, I guess. Um, <laughs> something I mean, like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm always struck when, when you know, U.S. Americans start doing kind of identity politics talk, talking about the roots or their communities. I, I always think, my God, you're so American. <laughs> so that, you know, for all the, for all the diversity um, talk, that it's all quite provincial and, and samey, that it's all very U.S. American, though increasingly it seems to be um, kind of global or at least across the West. I, I wanted to move on to um, something that's a central concern of the book on diversity, which is another element which took me a little bit by surprise because I didn't imagine the book going there, um, but I think it's rewarding for having done so, is that uh, the question of childhood and, and the way children are brought up today. So you ask pointedly, does spontaneous play nurture the individual's resources that sustain a liberal democracy? And conversely, does the waning of this play stunt talents essential for everyday citizenship? So you seem to want to answer yes. So what what is your thinking here? Well, yeah, I mean that is my thinking. I mean, I think I, I think that the, the danger uh, of and and you know it's it's sort of a symbol, you know, having strollers with with uh, iPad holders on them, um, you know, suggests that we are you know introducing infants to you know pre-packaged videos and pre-packaged uh entertainment you know at the, at the earliest ages um so you know what does that do to individual resources and imagination um 
you know, I have a little thing there about, you know, I guess the end of boredom, you know, that, that growing up, um, at one point, it was okay to be bored, you know, not having something to do. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I quote the classic 1950s novel, memoir about what are you, where are you going? Nowhere. What are you going to do? Nothing. Um, sort of like, you know, that the notion that kids would just, you know, you, you just go out and, you know, do nothing. Um, we, that doesn't happen anymore, or at least uh, it doesn't happen in the same way anymore because of paranoia. Like, okay, if you're doing nothing, that's dangerous. Uh, if you're bored, we got to overcome that. Um, and we can overcome it through an iPad, um, through, through prefabricated entertainment. Um, so the question is, if play itself, spontaneous play is now prefabricated, um, yeah, what does this do to the individual, to, to imagination, to the individual's resources? Uh, you know, I raise those questions. You know, can one talk about you know, the end of boredom, uh, the end of kind of the free space? Um, and again, you know, the difficulty is unraveling nostalgia from reality. I mean, the idea that, you know, my parents or, you know, that generation said, you know, would say, you know, go out and play. Um, well, you know, the parents say that anymore. It's too dangerous. You know, where are you going? You know, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, like, just go out and play, you know, come back for dinner. Whoa, you know, you couldn't do that nowadays. You'd be arrested. Child abandonment. You know, how come your child is wandering around the streets? Uh, so, it, you know, does that happen? You know, again, there's a question of nostalgia there. Um, but I think there is a real movement. I mean, there's a, there's a paranoia about leaving children alone at all, um, that it's dangerous. And when I say children, I'm not talking about three-year-olds. I'm talking about eight, nine, ten-year-olds. Uh, it's dangerous. And we've also filled the spaces. We, ha we have the ability to fill those spaces with, with you know, computers, with, with iPads, with, you know, with games. And, you know, talk about utopia. I mean, what does that do to imagination? That, that from the earliest ages, we are constructing, you know, uh, play for, for children. I mean, that's rather new. Um, so, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if it's, 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 you know, dangerous or not dangerous, but it's really damaging to the individual. Yeah. I mean, I, I found it as someone who, um, struggles, you know, or hates being bored, <laughs> really hates being bored and do it, will do anything to avoid it. Um, I found it compelling, um, the account you give. On the other hand, there's a, a skepticism within me, which goes, well, you know, there's been the usual hand wringing and indeed panics around television and then video games right. and then social media right. and so on. Um, why at this stage 
do we yell stop? You know, what is has has it reached a tipping point where childhood now is so under assault by advertisers and uh, you know social media and various forms of entertainment and loads of screen time that now at this point in history it's too much and childhood is being ruined and it'll have terrible consequences for democracy and everything else uh, in the future um, and that this is the point at which we all stop and why not um, in 1975 for that matter or why not in 2020 2030 or whatever well, again, it's it's a good point that I think I raise it myself. I mean, you know, the end of childhood has been announced now for you know twenty or thirty years. Uh, I mean, Neil Postman writes a book about it. Uh, I mean, I cite some of these things. I mean, it's not a new notion, um, but one has to be careful of saying, you know, well, we've heard this before, um, and so it's not true. I mean, you know, every generation says, you know, introduction of telephones, radios, TVs, internet, you know, we're all disastrous. Um, so we've we've heard this before. Um, I mean, sure, we should be aware. On the other hand, yes, maybe there is a tipping point. Uh, is it, isn't it possible that, that, that uh, yeah, I mean, the computers and the iPads uh, introduced at an early age uh, you know, do change the individual. Um, and, you know, and it seems like, I mean, I, I don't want to cite surveys, but, you know, you know, adolescents, teenagers, you know, they're more anxious and depressed than ever, uh, it seems. Yeah. Know. I mean, it, uh, you know, yeah, there was a, there was this, this there was this uh, survey. I mean, it was this chart circulated quite widely on on Twitter a, a couple of weeks back, showing this very sharp uptick in all these kind of pathologies um really over the past decade very sharp uptick in, in yeah, the us and right. it is hard right. to avoid the that the conclusion that i guess you're getting towards yeah yes that the you know the individual resources are, are, are kind of so weak i mean you see videos of you know at the early stage you see you know happy people <laughs> you know doing glorious things you know gorgeous looking you know not me I'm not gorgeous. I'm not doing that, you know. And if you see if the early stages, you know, just you can see it's corrosive, you know, you feel worse and worse. And I think, you know, that, that the individual resources are dwindling and the the ability to, to withstand that stuff, which, you know, has to do with growing up is, is harder to obtain. And, you know, I think kids and adolescents are more and more vulnerable. Uh, and so, yes, it's very possible there's an element of nostalgia there. You know, we used to go out and play and, you know, get lost, come back for dinner. You know, no one says that anymore, at least in the States. You know, you have sports, you have this, you have that, you, you know, you're, you're, you're regulated. Um, but perhaps there is a price to pay for the individual. Mm. I mean, has, has lost something. Hello, listener. That's the end of the free part of this interview. If you'd like to hear the rest of it, that's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Just to repeat, $5 a month subscribers get access to this as well as two original episodes a month, including extended interviews, original episodes where we analyze present history and ask the deeper questions about current affairs that aren't being asked elsewhere, as well as our engagement with patrons. And for $10, you get access to our reading club this year. 
2023, we are going through freedom, legitimacy, and globalization as the big themes of the year. We hope you will join us for this intellectual exploration, which will hopefully provide us with the tools to break through the impasse known as the end of the end of history. Catch you on the other side. Thank you.